I'm Elena Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. And today I have a profound pleasure. I'm introducing all of you to an old mentor and friend of mine, Chani Joshi, who was, when I first met her, the gender rights policy specialist, regional director for UNIFEM in the South Asia regional office. But Chani has many, many titles and incarnations to her name and her lifetime of work on women and children's rights. She has more than 50 years of working experience from being a lecturer at Padma Kanya College to the Regional Director of the United Nations Development Fund for Women for South Asia. And currently, Chani is the enforcer of HomeNet South Asia, which advocates for the rights of invisible women home-based care workers in the informal sector of the region. And as her short bio says, and nothing on paper will do her justice. Her name is synonymous with gender rights and macro policies in Nepal and other South Asian countries alike. Chani, it is such a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for being on Grandmothers on the Move. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, Nana. So lovely to hear your voice, Chani. Tell me, (laughs) it's been a long time. Tell me, what is occupying your thoughts and your time these days? Well, it is definitely, you know, the work I did, I've been doing for all these years, you know, that continues with the same passion and my family, especially my grandchildren. I find it much easier now because it's not a nine to five job anymore. So after retirement, I feel now I am the real granny because I was always a part-time granny, you know, (laughs) coming and visiting them. Even when they come to visit me, I had to travel, you know, that's where my duty would take me. So I always thought, you know, I never did that kind of justice that I should have with my grandchildren because they are the joy of my life. I have three uh, grandsons and I don't have any granddaughters. I have three grandsons and I say that with pride because I'm getting an opportunity (laughs) to make three gender responsive men in future. So that's their challenge and my challenge too. I call them my gems, my life. So beautiful. Yeah, I feel their love adds to my longevity, you know. I want to talk about your life and all the work that you've done and continue to do. It's so urgent and interesting. But I wonder how you feel at this moment when you look at these young men Uh, Because you were talking about how it's their work to do and your work to do to be gender responsive. How do you approach it? Because I know it's not like you want to be correcting them. Yeah. You know, I think being a single mother myself, they never saw their grandfather. So they have seen this single grandmother. And I have been trying to walk my talk by, you know, my feminism, what I have been doing, my actions, my work. I think it's so reflected at home too. You know, I just don't drop it in the office and come. So it comes with me in a package itself. 
I remember, you know, one incident. Shoko was one of our JPOs and she was staying with me. We were doing the campaign on violence against women. It was the Asia and Pacific launch. My small grandson, he was two years old and I was giving a live interview and they introduced me and they said Chandi Joshi. And I came home and he was standing in his diapers and he says, oh, so your name is Chandi Joshi because he had never heard anyone say that at home, right? So because my children called me Mamu. So from the next day, I derived my new name from Avas. He put the Mamu synonym first and then he added that Chandi's knee in it. So he called me Mamu knee. So my other two grandsons also called me Mamu knee. And it is reflected, you know, I observe them and I compare my grandsons with their peers and I find them totally different. They don't have any norms of that patriarchal mindset at all. And that makes me feel so happy. They showcase it, you know, through their action, their behavior, their attitudes. I sit and observe when they're talking to their peers, when they're talking to guests, uh, elders. And you know me, Elana, you know, I'm a very social being. Anyone from New York comes, then I host dinners for them, lunches for them. So they have always been meeting my friends. And when I see them converse, it makes me very proud and happy. I see their attitudes and behaviors reflected. They are growing strong feminists in their own way. Yeah, I take a lot of solace from that too, that even if patriarchal systems continue in the world around and boys benefit from that privilege, they can learn so early how to deconstruct it, how to recognize it, how yeah, to yeah. be equalizers in their own right. But I think we rely very much, at least I know I do, and when you're speaking, it makes sense, Chani, we rely very much on the older women in our lives to embody that, to be a gentle coach, someone who encourages them that way, because when the grandmother comes in, she wields a different influence. <laughs> exactly. I think it's not only mine, but it's their unconditional love too. Like the photographs I've shared with you, look at the way they look at me. They look at their lips and their hand movement, you know, the way they hug me. These are reflections, in just reflections of the love and they're not afraid of expressing their love. And I feel very happy about this. And there was one incident that I would really want to share with you. You know, as they make me proud in everything they do. But at one point, I remember there was a very popular TV show where the children talk about their trusted friend. If anything happens, if or if I feel my rights had been violated, whom do I go to? Mm -hmm. So Abhiraj came from school. He used to come at three o'clock. And I, as soon as he came, you know, I gave him something to eat. And I asked him, if anything of this kind happens, whom would you go to? Whom do you trust most? He said, of course you, Mamuni. Go to my parents. <laughs> I'll go to you. And I felt so happy and proud, you know. After an hour and a half, his brother came from school. And the same, you know, he had his tea and all. And then he sat. And I asked him the same question. He rolled his eyes and looked at me and said, who else than you? It's you. So it's a trust, you know, it's such a strong bond and trust that we have in each other. He's in Boston, but every morning till he says good morning, you know, I feel my day is not complete. Two things, you know, that really I'm thinking of. One is storytelling. We love to spend time, even today, in the midst of all the TV, WhatsApp, and all the IT, you know, internet, Google, whatever. <laughs> you know, still they find time to sit with me and listen to my stories. Right from Grimm's fairy tale to Tolstoy to Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. You know, I did my master's in English. So they have heard all my authors, you know, I love. 
And one thing I loved doing, I called it love in every stitch. I knit a lot. Those were my gifts of love for them. And I still knit. When I make one cap, I have to make three. And I used to make their uniform, you know. So that still continues. And that's something very special between them and me. I've been so fascinated by the remarkable nature of the bond between grandmothers and grandchildren. It has so much power. That love is a force that works throughout generations. And you've put it so beautifully, Chadney, because it is something ineffable. Yes, exactly. exactly. And Ilana, they really educate me. I remember it was Beijing Plus 25 meetings in Kathmandu. I'm the advisor of the National Committee and they were talking about how much we can give the youngsters, you know, and I was saying we always get from youngsters. Look at their way of thinking, how they keep us updated, how much information technology they know. They have so much information and that's my second grandchild. Abhiraj is a genius. I think every grandmother talks about the same thing about their grandchildren. (laughs) But I call him the prophet of the family. He Uh challenges us. He can tease our memory. He can tease our brain. He's so analytic. So I feel like there's so much learning. You've spent so many years, decades, working in Nepal, in India, in South Asia. And one of the things that I watched you do so well and learned from you was how you were able to listen to and hear so many different stories, different realities of women in different situations. And you had both the policy dimension of it, but you really had the women's lived experiences in all of their diversity in the region at the heart of your inquiry and of your actions. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yes, Ilana, that makes you Ilana. See, that's the heart of my work. Mm -hmm. Listening, listening is the heart of my work. I always felt that they are the ones, you know, those women there are the ones who know. I always counted on their wisdom, always respected their dignity, whatever walk of life they come from. And I always believed in inclusion, bringing you know, diverse people together and having the patience, not only to listen, but getting others also to listen to them, not only myself, because I had full faith. We have 75 districts in Nepal. So I have literally walked when I say walked means we didn't have motorable roads those days. To go to one project site, you have to walk for four days to reach that site. You know, that kind of walk, wow. I mean. It's not flying or going by a car. You literally have to walk. And right. I have walked to 65 districts of Nepal. So still people in Nepal call me the mother of PCRW. That was called the Production Credit for Rural Women. You know, that was the program I ran. So that gave me the patience that gave me the wisdom to listen to their point of view and to take that to the policymakers in terms of changing laws, changing policies, literally, you know, convincing them. That was my biggest logic that I used. And that I continued. What I learned in Nepal, I continued in UNIFM too. Because for the Rio summit, there were 500 women in every country. We literally had them to come and talk to policy planners and tell us what environment and development meant. We took three of them to Rio also and then to New York where they shared. So we wanted right from the horse's mouth, as they say. So we wanted them and they took part. They spoke on panels with Vandana Shiva and Wangari Mathai, the late Wangari Mathai also. So I always had so much belief, faith that they were the ones, you know. So they were the wise ones. And then we had dialogues with them, you know, with the policy planners, with the prime ministers of the countries, heads of agencies, you know, head of the states, 
they got to meet them and tell them what they saw and what should be the policies. And that continued, you know, with the national development plans, even today. The other day we were having a meeting, just before COVID I'm talking about, and one of the migrant workers said, see, I got a letter from the Ministry of Finance. The Minister of Finance has called us to discuss the budget of Nepal. And I felt so proud, you know, that is what I had started. So they had to be consulted. And about six months back, while in Delhi, they were talking about the tribal women we worked with. And they said they are coming to Delhi because the planning commission has called them because the government of India is chalking out a new plan. The whole system has been institutionalized. Now they are counting on women's wisdom, their experiences, their knowledge is being recognized by the system itself. So I feel very happy about this. And this continues, Ilana, as you said, it is a strategy that you have used. It has worked. So we use the same. Even after the earthquake in 2015 in Nepal, one year after that, you know, we called 100 women from all the 14 affected districts. So 100 women came and talked to the Home Minister, the Secretary from the Prime Minister's office, the National Reconstruction Authority, all the key people with the UN. So they had one-to-one talk. We, we called this meeting for three days. The first day we only talked about how they had suffered. So they were crying, you know, talking about how their baby just died in their lap. Some were talking about how their mm-hmm. sister was buried in the same house. And yeah. so they cried, we cried. The second day, they talked about building. And third day, they talked about we can build a nation. So that is the kind of resilience your women have. That's the kind of strength. And I'm still encouraging that and it works. Now people, realization is very much transferred in the right people now. You know, when I think, Chani, about how you instantly through so many natural disasters and emerging threats, you know, always looking at what are women doing almost as the first responders? How are they involved in managing? And now, of course, it's a different kind of challenge with COVID. But I'm sure that in the same way, you're looking at women at the heart of the response. What are you thinking about and seeing at this moment in that context? We are looking at it as a double jeopardy, you know, this double jeopardy at the moment. One is the fear of disease and then the fear of starvation, losing mm-hmm. their jobs, their mm-hmm. livelihood. So when other disasters struck, as you said, you know, we came out with, uh, we called it the Charter of Demand. There's a group called Women Friendly Disaster Management Group, and I'm the chair of that since 2015. So my experiences of working in Tsunami, Gujarat, Pakistan, we, they used that experience knowledge to build the Charter of Demand. And even after COVID-19, we have come up with a Charter of Demand. We have sent it to all the UN agencies to the government of Nepal and to all the authorities who are responsible. It's telling them that disaster hits women and men very differently. And, you know, the the whole gamut of trafficking that happens, early child marriages happen and the domestic violence, the cases are rising and the number of suicides are rising. Women are not only losing their livelihoods, but they are literally abused in their own home front because they can't even go out because of lockdowns. So it's, right. it's a very queer and very, very difficult situations. So we have a group together. It's called GIHA, the gender group that works on humanitarian assistance. Even women and the Ministry of Women's Affairs and all of us, gender advocates, we are all part of it. Other UN organizations also join and NGOs 
So we shared, last time it was on mental health. And before that, it was looking at the health aspects of it. We have had 11 meetings so far. We meet almost every fortnight and talk about it and share. This is happening now, there's flood. So we have had lots of problems there. And again, you know, we had sent in 100 blankets. The group got together to give hot food to people in need. So every day, you know, 300 people are being fed for the last three months. All these efforts are going on, Elena, but it's a drop in the ocean, you know, unless everything has to change. So it is now, again, the lockdown has started in Nepal because there was rise in cases. You know, everything is on certain. Yes, and that's true everywhere. Every country, every community where the cases go down and people are so eager to resume life, you hear the yeah. same stories of the differing impact on women, differing yeah. impact on racialized minorities. It shows yeah. the fault lines in our societies yes. where... Informal sector people and missed workers. Yeah. And I wonder, Chani, with all of the decades of work that you have done, always with, you know, vulnerable populations, but building extraordinary resilience and recognizing their expertise about what needs to change and what needs to happen. Do you think that there is a possibility that we come out of this with a catalyst for change in a more deep way or a more meaningful way? What do you think? One thing that really surprises me, Elena, is let's look at World War One, World War Two. Mm-hmm. The way women, you know, maybe because of their patience, their perseverance, their hope for future, something that gets back, you know, make them so, so resilient. Even just get to give you two examples, after the earthquake, the men preferred to drink and sleep, whereas women went back to those houses, which were literally destroyed, even to find maybe there's some food grain or something precious, you know, that they can dig out or some money that they can start their livelihood again. You know, we saw that. And they were the ones, you know, who started community kitchens, hot food for everyone for 21 days in one village. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is with the home-based workers. And this time also, we saw the same story with the same groups. You know, as soon as COVID striked, they were doing textile, you know, fashion attires, you know, they had their shops (laughs) and that's what they were involved in. But from the next day, I heard they had got into making masks. So they are producing many masks Uh, and the protective gears. Right. So they are so easy, adaptable, they change and they know, you know, what the market wanted. They are the ones, you know, who are the bread earners. They are the ones who are pulling through. Recently, I think it was just two weeks back that UNDP ordered 40,000 masks from them. And this was according to the WHO standards. And today I heard from my daughter that they are negotiating with UNICEF to produce massively masks for children also. So you see that fast adaptation moving from this to that, you know, they are so adaptable as all women do. We think of the future. We think of hope. At the end of the tunnel, we do see light. So I think that inequalities, what they face, they're able to shun that off and run forward. You know, I see that happening in any country, any country from South Asia. And I'm sure it's the same story of all sisters. And I want to pick up on something that you said earlier, you know, in the moments we're looking for where the hope lies, that certainly is where so many of us turn is to the the women on the front lines. And I think increasingly older women who have had the kind of experience that you have had to help us understand how to build resilience, 
how to survive these moments because you have been leading efforts for so many years. You've seen so much that the continuity of survival feels like something that we all need to cling to and that gives us hope. As an older woman who has been in a position of leadership for many years in many different contexts, how do you see where you sit now in relation to younger women who are coming up who will take these movements forward? How do you see that, Jenny? Well, I can't say about other places in the world, but in the South Asian context, in Nepal, I see that the younger women are not forgetting us. You know, they are looking for help. And again, I'm coming back to my CV. You'll see in so many places, you know, I've been advisor too, and I've been uh, honorary member too. So they want your involvement. You know, they want Mm -hmm. that association. They want to hear. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, for the Beijing plus 15, Beijing plus 20, Beijing plus 25, I've always been made the advisor of the national body right. so that, you know, they are guided and I share my experiences. But uh, in that case, you know, it's also challenging. People don't only want to hear about old stories, but they want to hear contextual what they should be doing then. So I think we also need to update ourselves and be up to date and understand their concepts and their feelings and give them that space, give them that recognition, award them, motivate them, inspire them and push them. You know, that is what role we have to also play because the whole mama syndrome doesn't work anymore. When that happens, then there is conflict. Mm -hmm. But when you give that space, you recognize them They understand and they fully, fully want your involvement. When I say, no, 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 I don't think I should be, no, 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 it's not for namesake. We want you and you really feel so good about it. And I think, Elena, you know, we also have, well, I can talk for myself here is coming back to my grandchildren is, you know, after 92, when I lost my husband and my eldest daughter in an air crash, you know, my daughter, my son, who are quite small, one was 19 and one was 13 years old. You know, they were very young. Mm-hmm. One was going to the States to study and other had just finished his secondary school. So in that situation, you know, my grandson, when he came, gave us the will to live. We realized, you know, that now we have to come back. We have to live, be back to life and we have to be better. You know, we can't be less. Mm-hmm. So that kind of motivation. And I think we women, we look for a small hope and that really, really helps. And also, like, we are not afraid. I think, you know, the risk takers that we are, we are not afraid to express ourselves. We are not afraid to be hurt again. We are not afraid that what will the others say? You know, I think we have passed that. And that also gives us a lot of courage to do things and people really respect that. Yes, I've heard from so many older women that they feel freer now. And I want to talk to you about another group that you started. I have been thinking a lot about and speaking to a lot of people about the painfulness of the isolation that so many older people and older women in particular are feeling now. And it really brings home to me as you're speaking because I can hear the pleasure and the sukkah and the the 
life force of the relationship that you have with these grandchildren and the four-year-old in particular. But it also makes me think about how difficult uh, yes. it is to be separated and also how impossible it is to separate for so many families. Exactly. exactly. And you're so right, Elena, you know, after about a week after the lockdown, you know, it was such a queer feeling. This sense of uncertainty, the fear factor was so huge. You just didn't mm. know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And we are not used to, you know, this distancing, as you call it. And with my daughter and myself, you know, okay, we caught up with each other. We listened to music. We did our chores. We were part of Zooms and webinars. But still, you know, I felt that we should do something. So as you said, you know, I started thinking about these elderly people, even people whose children have gone abroad and they're stuck here. How are they coping? What must be happening? If it is financial crisis, what would happen? So I just talked to some of my friends and we have started an association called FIPMO. So the former all multilateral and bilateral agencies, you know, people who have worked in those, we have come together and we have formed a group and we call ourselves FIPMO. So I was the vice chair there. We talked to each other and we said, let's take money out from our pocket. And we decided on a sum. And with that, we said, let's send food and necessary items like masks, thermometers, sanitizer, and wash, you know, whatever we could, and easy comfort food, and also, you know, ration for fortnight. We put all those packages together with all the information. These are the emergency numbers you can call here. You should do this with all the information. We put that together. We made packages and we sent it to 100 elderly people. making sure that they had something hot to eat. If they had fear, at least they could check and uh, they had thermometers with them because it might be very necessary items, but, you know, so many don't have it in their houses. This is the Women-Friendly Disaster Management Group. So we approached, you know, we didn't go to any other donor, but we went to our institution, FIPMO, where I, I was the vice chair. So from them, you know, we got the money and then WFDM did the packaging and sent it to everyone else. Wow. That's exceptional. And so now, Chani, aside from the fact that I hope you're thinking about writing your autobiography. I finished, Elena. You finished it. Oh, fantastic. So now that you finished it, what's next? Yeah, you won't believe it, you know. Just before COVID striked, we were coming to New York. And from New York, we were supposed to go to Delhi because the publisher was eager, you know. He saw some of my chapters of the book and he was interested to publish it. So we were going to have a meeting with him. So it'll have to be. But the manuscript is ready. Wonderful. And I hear from what you're saying that you're still working, you're still on Zoom calls, you're still coordinating things from where you are. I call myself retired, but not tired. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Retired, but not tired. No, Elena, you know, what we are planning at the moment is starting distribution centers in all the provinces of Nepal, because inequality is going to prevail, right? Yes. So who is going to feed to look after the ones who are not listened to, you know? So we are trying to gather data from all the seven provinces to see, you know, how many men, how many women, how many elderly, how many children, 
really need help and we are trying to see how we can reach them. We are looking at the health factor, testing equipments and how they can be reached, how can they feel more secure, you know, how can they, their health be guided. And the second is how to save them from starvation, from hunger. So, you know, it could be cash for work, food distribution. So that's a, a large, large plan I have. So I'm looking for donors. I'm looking for who will help, but non-traditional donors, because traditional donors have their own factors, you know, that they look at and when mm-hmm. they come. So I'm really looking at inequalities, looking at whole donor who will come without conditionality and support the people below poverty line, people who are suffering. Awesome. So that's the large plan that I have. So when I was discussing this, you know, with uh, some of the would-be board members, they were saying, Oh, it's like running a parallel government. I was saying, yeah, whatever you call it, you know, because <laughs> uh, the, the people who need help are more than 50%, you know. So I am talking about them. So that's what they think. We are going to run a parallel government. Women's <laughs> 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 movement. Exactly, exactly. So I'll have to look around with a torch to, to find donors. Absolutely. to do that. Yes, to Absolutely. support. And yeah. I hear what you're saying because, of course, this is the work that you and I have been doing for a long time and thinking about, which is the necessity to have the funds flow in the way that yeah. the communities and the women need it rather than the ways that the donors dictate. Yes, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. It has ever been thus. Okay, so so let's not say goodbye. Let's make this the first chapter of... Yeah, uh, sure, sure. Several conversations because I want to come back and check in with you and hear about um, how the women's parallel government is going. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, if if we get the money, where do you think that kind of money can come from, Johnny? Well, sometimes I feel, Elena, you know, there was one thing that Sharon used to say, if you remember, she would say, never hesitate to ask mm-hmm. because people Absolutely. have it. And unless you ask, people never give it to you. Because, you know, it can, it can be a question of dignity. But if, if you do, you know, there are people who want to help. There are individuals, there are foundations, there are institutions, you know, who are there, whose heart also bleed like ours. You know, that feeling has to be there. I'm a very, very optimistic person, as you know. Yes. And I, I think what I work for, you know, I, I get it. And all my supervisors, you know, they have done small, small interviews and they say nothing can stop her. Once she says she wants to do it, she'll do it. She'll get the money. (laughs) She will get the money. She will derive the mandate, but still she'll do it. So I'm still that same Chani. I'll still do it. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's true. This is the need, the need. Yeah. Uh, An example of what can happen after, you know, COVID-19, really. Absolutely. Show show people, show the world that this is also possible. I think there are a lot of lessons and new ways of working that we can learn from the Women Friendly Disaster Network. And I'd love to come back in a few months and hear more about how you've all moved together through this time. Let's just make this chapter one. Okay, Uh, okay. Thank you so much for this. It was such a pleasure to speak to you and hear from you. Thank you, Elena. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.